Thanks for listening to the Lunch and Learn with Dr. Barry, here to help educate, motivate, and put you on the right path to take control of your health through weekly discussions on topics in the medical field, public health arena, and in your community. And now your host, Dr. Barry. Welcome to another episode of Lunch Learn with Dr. Barry. I'm your host, Dr. Barry Pierre, your favorite board-certified internist, founder of drbarrypierre.com, as well as the CEO of Pierre Medical Consulting, helping you empower yourself for better health with the number one podcast for patient advocacy, affirmation, and education. This week, we bring you Dr. Kate Ogle, who is a board-certified emergency medicine physician currently practicing at George Washington University. Uh, most importantly, she started out as a registered nurse before becoming a physician, which for those who have know, know me, I always, I always talked about the story how uh, when I was an intern, uh, the first time I learned how to treat this really significant uh, critical care illness uh, in the ICU was from a nurse. So I've, I've always had a love and respect uh, for our nursing community uh, because I know how they work. So def- definitely uh, love having that background. And um, she talks about that a lot on, on the podcast this week. And um, we're going to be talking to her uh, not only because uh, she is an amazing emergency medicine physician, um, she is extremely active in medical education. Uh, where not only she teaches residents, but she also teaches fellows as well as medical students. Uh, but most importantly, she is also an author. So she's added that uh, to her list of amazing things that she's already doing. And we're going to be talking about her contribution uh, to the most recent anthology, The Chronicles of Women in White Coats, Volume 2. And we're going to be talking about her motivation and you know what got her to the point where she said, I need to put a uh, pen down paper. So this is going to be another amazing episode. So please stay tuned for a lot of amazing insight that you do not want to miss. Uh, remember, subscribe to the podcast, tell 10 of your friends, and uh, take notes. You guys have a blessed day. This podcast is sponsored by the Lunch and Learn Community Merchandise Store, living out the motto, empower yourself for better health. At the store, you can get your favorite t-shirts, coffee mugs, even wristbands, and more. For a limited time, you can get 10% off your next purchase using the coupon code EMPOWER10. That's EMPOWER10, E-M-P-O-W-E-R-10. Just go to shop.drbarrypr.com to pick up your purchase and get 10% off today. And remember, 50% of your purchases will be donated to the Five Star Scholarship Foundation, a nonprofit organization for high school students. All right, Lunch and Learn community, just heard another amazing introduction uh, from a guest who I am very interested uh, in talking to. One, uh, because she is an accomplished author. Two, uh, because just looking at her bio, she's into graduate medical education. Really, more importantly, um, we're going to talk about her work as an ally in the White Coast for Black uh, Lives movement. Dr. Ogle, thank you for coming on to the Lunch and Learn community and you know blessing us with your presence uh, and really just kind of getting us together. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So what I like to do, especially in the beginning, because I typically have a lot of my listeners who, even though I do a good introduction, I think it's a good introduction, uh, they always kind of fast forward and go to the main uh, part. Uh, I think they just like to skip my commercial. I have a little commercial. I think they like to skip uh, the commercial aspect of it. Uh, and they go right to this main episode. Um, so for those who may have skipped it, right, and say, you know, who's Dr. Ogle? Like, can you, can you give them a little bit of a, you know, like, hey, if you skip this, this is who I am. Uh, you know, this is why you should listen to me. This is why I'm so amazed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I am Dr. Kat Ogle. I am a board certified emergency physician. And I'm actually the first person to go to a college in my family. 
So I actually was a nurse for seven years before I became a physician because I wanted to try it out and make sure it was really what I wanted to do before investing the, the time and the money because I was responsible for paying for my college education. And so those foundational years as a nurse were really informative and really helpful for me in maturing, you know, as a young adult and, and really preparing me to be a physician. Um, in my practice, I am in an academic emergency department and I work in three different hospitals. One of them is the community hospital or the city hospital. So it's lower resources and um, folks who are really beholden to social determinants of health. And the other is the Veterans Administration Hospital and then our tertiary academic center. So I have three very different clinical sites uh, where I see patients. And then I am also, as an academician, I teach at the medical school with medical students, residents, fellows, and I do some faculty development as well. My passions, I would say, are primarily medical education and point of care ultrasound. And more recently, I have really developed a passion for diversity and inclusion and really um, transitioning that over into what it means for me to be an ally uh, to persons of color. And what I love is, and I, and I tell people all the time, uh, every physician's path is different to get to where you're at. Typically, um, the patients and really just the general community typically see the end result. And, you know, you know, for some reason, they think we golf a lot. I've never, again, I've never actually golfed a day in my life, um, but they think we golf a lot. They just kind of seem like we <laughs> I have love like the driving similar, range. right. Like I, I look, I've never like, and they trust me, they keep inviting me and I'm like, yeah, nah, I can't do it. Like if there's someone, one day someone's just going to have to like drag me and then I'm, I'm pretty sure it'd be surprised. I probably love it. Like if I actually got there, but you know, I think the closest I got was they did a simulation and it seemed interesting, but I was so bad at it that I stopped doing it. I'm like, oh, I'm terrible at this. I'm not going to. I'm not going to keep embarrassing myself in front of all of my colleagues out here. So it's, it's interesting when, when I see, especially those who come from the nursing field, right, who come into medicine, right? Uh, especially because I figure if you're that close to our field, you're like, oof, like it's kind of it's kind of rough over there. Like sometimes I almost feel like that could be a deterrent. But for you, it seems like you, you saw, um, you know, where you were at. You saw where you could be kind of in the future. And you're like, oh, you know what? I'm, I still want to go there. And I love that story because I, I talk to a lot of pre-meds who, you know, they're always weary and concerned about, you know, whether, you know, they can do this as a second career or they can do this as like so something else before medicine. They always feel like it has to be this rush job where they have to go right from uh, middle school to high school to undergrad to medical school. And I'm like, it doesn't work. It's it's I, I can promise you it does not work like that. That's not the ideal uh, situation. And uh even interesting, even serving as uh, some of the during some of the medical school interviews, uh, sometimes we look at that like, oh, like I wonder if this person is going to be kind of able to handle a transition because they've never had a, a break uh, per se. So I, I definitely love, you know, just 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 hearing that path saying, yeah, you know what? You know, I worked as registers. I was, you know, and you you did a lot of uh, critical care, right? You were like from my read, like so you were you were not only a registered nurse, you were one of our, you know, in the trenches for real, for real. Um, and, and, I, and I tell people this all the time. Uh, when I was an intern, uh, which is first year residency, um, 
my my uh, registered nurse who was a ICU nurse at the time, she was the first person to teach me like how to treat DKA. Like she was, she was like, no, 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 we're gonna, you need to do this and you gotta follow the serial B. Like she was the one who educated me. Um, so I, I, again, I, I just, I, I love nursing in general because I'm, I'm, as a hospitalist, like you almost have to, like how do you, how can you, one, how can you not love nurses in general, but like, like you have to because you realize how much there, you have to lean on their level of experience uh, when it comes to patient care, because honestly, they, they're going to see the patient more than me. I just got to be honest. I'm, I'm in there and out of there, uh, but they're going to spend that time. So I love leaning on nurses. So I, I love our physicians who have that background uh, in nursing, because it, I think it definitely gives them that other picture, um, you know, to be able to kind of look at medicine as a whole. So t- talk to me about sweat. And again, like I said, I'm, 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 always, I'm very interested, right? Because obviously you're, you're, you're pretty involved in the graduate, graduate medical education as well. And of course, as, you know, as a, as a program director, um, you know, I, I, I poop, my eyes kind of like get big, right? Because I love to see uh, those in academic medicine. Because I, I mean, as you know, uh, not too many of us in the medicine field really choose to focus on academic medicine. Um, for, for, so what was it, you know, ab- about your training that kind of led you in, in, even in that direction when you said, you know what, academic medicine may be for me. What was it in th- th- that you liked about it? So it probably started with my roots in nursing because I was always in a position to be a peer educator um, because I was first a charge nurse. And then when I got into the ICU, I helped to develop our curriculum for our onboarding of new nurses and I was always very interested about how people learn and how to teach things to people. And I also feel like by mastering something and being able to teach it to somebody else, then that means that you really have a solid understanding of it. And there's nothing, there's nothing probably more exciting to me as an educator than seeing the light bulb go on for somebody. Because when they get it, there's just so much pride, so much intrinsic pride for you, but also you just feel the pride beaming from them when they finally understand a concept or they're finally able to explain something or they're finally able to solve a puzzle. It's just a beautiful thing. And, you know, I also think the thing that drew me to academic medicine was the fact that all of these students coming in, these young doctors coming in, they are sharp and they keep me on my toes. They ask really difficult questions. They ask really challenging questions. And it is inspiring and intimidating. And it just, I feel like it just keeps me yearning for more information. Because as physicians, we go into this knowing that we're going to be lifelong learners. We're going to spend our lives learning the medicine, learning the most updated treatment methodologies, and you know learning the new medications and learning the new treatment regimens but also just they they totally keep us on our toes and i think that that energy really was something that that fed me and i think when i when i look at my friends who have gone into emergency medicine in the community and i look at the number of hours that they work clinically and i think about sort of how I balance my love for medicine and my love for emergency medicine. I do love being in the ER. I love taking care of patients in the ER. I love taking care of emergencies. I love that, you know, rush that you get when somebody comes in with a a really sick, 
you know, you know, laceration or, you know, a stroke or a heart attack and, you know, trauma and you're just on it and you just, you get your team together and you go through A to Z, that's a rush. But I know myself and I think part of this comes from having a little bit of experience prior to being here. That wasn't all I wanted to do. I also wanted to be able to give back in a way. And I think that's one of the things that, that just makes academics such a beautiful thing. What I, what I love is you hit literally all of the points um, of why I love it as well too, um, right on the head, uh, especially because in, in you're your, your not even exaggerating the, the students, the residents, I don't work with fellows, but I can only imagine um, they keep you on your toes. Like, and they, they don't even allow you right to slack. Like you may one day you're like, yeah, I just want to slack. I want to kind of chill and relax a little bit. And then they hit you with a question and you're like, all right, let me go. Let me, let me get back on it. Like I, I, I can't, cause you can't even rest. And it's, it is such a, an enriching um, experience because, you know, you learn, you see them, you watch them grow. Um, you know, you, you see them as scared uh, medical students, scared interns, right? And then you see them leave as confident, uh, you know, senior uh, residents soon to be attending. So it's definitely such a, a transformation that you're able to kind of witness month by month, year by year, uh, you know, that really, you really can't, it's really difficult to kind of replicate. So I, I definitely love, um, you know, that aspect as well, too, especially when it, when it comes to graduate medical education and you know, just kind of dealing with, you know, those who really keep us on our toes and really the future uh, of our profession. Now, well, I, I will say this, especially with everything going on, how are you able to have free time, right, to even say, you know what, like, I want to write this book, right? So let's, let's, I, I want to talk about just kind of your, the, the motivation behind, you know, the Women in White Code series, uh, too, uh, which you're a, a co-author in, and what, like, what was the origin story behind that? And how did you find time to, especially with everything that you do in, in lunch learning community, uh, this is a busy person right here. This is a busy person. <laughs> um, I train at Wellington. I, I, I'm a program director at Wellington Regional Medical Center. And uh, GW, George Washington, is kind of one of our, for our company standpoint, is like one of our sister hospitals per se. And I already know how crazy busy it is over there. So I can only imagine, and she's at, uh, two other different hospitals. So I can only imagine just how busy and time consuming that may be. Uh, so so I, I do ask, like, how, how did you how did you end up uh, where you say, you know what, I'm going to write something, right? I want to be an author. Like, how, did, how, did, how did that come about? So there's a couple, there's a couple of things that inspired me to do it. And one of the most important roles that I neglected to mention when you asked me to do my self intro is I'm also a mom and I'm a single mom. Uh, I have an excellent co-parenting relationship with my son's father, and we we co-parent very well together. Um, but since March, he's been out of school, so that has made things very interesting and dynamic. But to your question about how did I make the time, how did I fit it in, and why was I inspired to do it, what I have realized being an academician is how many eyes are on you. How many people are looking at you and seeing the way you model your practice and your interactions with people? And the number of meetings that I've had with students who felt like their lives were falling apart because they were having life, 
you know, someone got cancer, someone was having a heart attack, someone had a stroke and they had to figure out, you know, how to take care of them. Someone's family member lost their, their primary caretaker. So then someone has to manage medical school and taking care of their parent. They would come into my office and they would talk to me as if I was untouchable, as if it was just so easy and I just made it look easy and that I must not have ever struggled and how do I keep it all together? And I, I realized, you know, after having some frank discussions with some of my students about where I've been, where I came from and what I've been through, the amount of stress relief that melted away from their face by knowing that in fact it wasn't easy. In fact, the route was 85 ways wrong before it went one way right. That it had multitude of barriers and challenges and speed bumps and detours. Like this ain't easy. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> you know? Talk to him. And, Talk to him. I just, I I felt like by, by not sharing my path, by not sharing some of my own personal struggles, I was being a little bit disingenuous. And I thought that it would be really helpful for them to feel connected because of, you know, common experiences and shared experiences. Now, and I, and I've, and I've asked this before, I've asked this to several guests before, especially physicians, um, as, 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 you know, you're going along the path of becoming a physician, um, were you, were you, were you in close relationship with, you know, uh, obviously as a nurse, you might've been in close relationship with other physicians, but in terms of them kind of letting you know, like, Hey, uh, it's tough as well. Uh, because I, I, I remember my experience, um, you know, not necessarily with a lot of physicians is I used to just think like, oh, like I must be the only person kind of going through these kind of trials and tribulations across this path. And, and I definitely remember when I first heard, you know, one of my um, uh, one of my mentors like kind of say like, oh, yeah, no, I had to do this. I had to do that. And then I can I, I just remember seeing like, wow, OK. Oh, OK. So you can be tough and you can go through these issues and, and, and these hurdles and these obstacles and still make it to the other side. Uh, because now I had at least an example that I can kind of attach to a person who I've seen done it. Uh, Cause a lot of times, you know, we, we don't feel something can be done until it's done before us. And, and when you see someone uh, say like, Oh yeah, the, the road was tough. Like, and tough is tough is being light. Uh, the road was tough and I still got to where I'm going uh, is definitely um, eye-opening. Did you have that experience? Like as, as you were going through, you know, the, the, the ups and the downs, like knowing people like who kind of went through that similar, um, you know, pathway before you? I didn't really have anyone to share that experience with until I got to medical school. Because, you know, again, being the first person in my family to go to college, my family didn't, you know, they haven't had the experience of needing to do pre-med and and work full time. And when I was doing, because my nursing degree was an associate degree. So it was just a two year degree to become an RN. And so when I became, when I, when I realized that I needed to go to medical school and I had to start from scratch essentially, 
And so I was working full time nights, weekends in the ICU, and then going to school Monday through Friday for four years. And during that time, Oof. all of oh, my man. classmates, <laughs> it was good training for medical school. I, I have to say that. It was really good training for medical school. It was like, it was like the ultimate marathon training for academics. Um, but most of my classmates who were also pre-med were that typical high school, college, medical school bound, you know, and had the support of their families and had like doctors in their families and things like that. And I was sort of going in blind. I was just like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor, <laughs> right? And once I hit medical school, my cadre of, of friends, many of us were non-traditional students. So we had had other um, experiences and careers. So it's, it's natural that we gravitated together. But when we were really struggling, we were struggling as a pack, you know, and so that was helpful. But up until medical school, I didn't really have an inclination for the challenges that I would meet. And I think the other thing is that as a nurse, I didn't, now granted, I did not work in an academic hospital. It was a private hospital, but I did not meet any uh, supporting words from any of the physicians that worked there except for one. And she was a black woman who was an anesthesiologist and she's a total badass. Um, she's the only one that encouraged me. All the other docs were like, you're just a nurse. Why do you want to be a doctor? They're not going to want you. <laughs> They're not going to want you. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. <laughs> all of my friends, now, now to, to sort of the other side of it, all of my friends who were, worked in the IC with me, they were fabulous and they supported me along the way, you know, and all of my outside of nursing friends in Vegas were also phenomenal and supporting me along the way. But I didn't have any, any doctorly mentorship um, until I got into medical school. Do you, do you feel, I'm not say subconsciously, do you feel like that just that having that lack of mentorship, uh, especially at a time where, um, it would have been great to kind of have some. Uh, do you feel that that also kind of helps drive, um, you, you know, the you know your will, uh, you know, to you know to to be in someone else's life, uh, whether it be peripherally or even directly, and kind of helping them along. Absolutely, absolutely, uh, without without a doubt. I mean, there are there are a couple of medical student groups that I follow on Twitter and, you know, I've offered to be mentors for them. And it's like, um, first gen med and black girl, white coat, um, and a couple others, because I, I want for them to have that, you know, I want for them to have a little bit of support and a little bit of guidance and someone to bounce ideas off of. And I, I think I think what's so important, especially when we talk about you know having that level of support and having you know you know that that guidance, almost like that that shining light, especially in in a time when darkness is there, right? Like obviously you know depending on lunch late community, depending on when you listen to this, hopefully you listen to this like a week it comes out, but let's say you're not, right? Um, you know it's, if you turn on the TV. Uh, you know, a lot of issues are going on, right, especially when it comes to uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, the murder of George Floyd and just the murder of Breonna Taylor and just, you know, all these things that just keep happening over and over and over again. And, and I talk about it, especially as a physician, um, because I know there's issues in a legal system that clearly need to be corrected. 
Um, but I also know in the healthcare system, uh, you know, we're kind of in a glass house as well when it comes to a lot of the, um, you know, the, the racism and, you know, the, the, just the, the, the prejudice that kind of goes along with our system of care. So, and so, so we, we have this faction, um, you know, white coats for black lives movement and which is really kind of this kind of this sounding board to say like, Hey, we as doctors recognize, you know, the, the, the importance of the black lives movement. And can, can you talk about kind of your experience um, you know, with that, right? And and, and I remember for those who know, I'm at, uh, at Wellington, um, we we actually uh, did a a kneel in, I guess, but it was it was kind of outside a hospital. Um, you know, it was me and about like seven to ten of our residents out there. Uh, and again, it was it was kind of a lonely experience, right? Because um, you know, it, it's it's difficult to get you know, uh, everyone involved and by everyone you want, like, you know, administrators and everything, but sometimes you kind of have to go it alone. Um, what has been your experience with just kind of, you know, being an ally and just the white, white coats for black lives movement, uh, in general. Mm -hmm. So I have to say that this is the first time in my life that I have actually begun to recognize my privilege as a white person. You know, I think I also was always the person who was like, well, I, you know, I have black friends and I'm not a racist and, you know, I support my friends and, um, you know, I hang out with them and I, I hang out with their kids. And what I didn't, what I didn't realize until really in, in the last two months or so is I didn't see them. I didn't see my friends. I didn't see what they were feeling when they watched these horrific things happen on the news. Like I could just, I could just ignore it because that's my privilege and that's what I have done for most of my life. But what I have come to realize now, and part of it also has to do with conversations that I've had with one of my sheroes, um, Dean Yolanda Haywood. She has been, sort of a pillar of strength and guidance for me through my career at GW. And I've sat down with her and she's, she's currently the, the Dean for diversity and inclusion. And she's also been a Dean for faculty affairs and student affairs. She's told me, well, Kat, you know, jokingly, obviously there's, there's no contractual obligation here, but she's joked around with me that, that I could have her job when she left. You know, and I said, well, but I'm white. <laughs> I can't be, I can't, I can't be responsible for diversity and inclusion. I'm white. And she's like, it's not just about, you know, it's not just about racial diversity. Now that is what we're talking about right now. And I think the conversations that I've had with her over the years have sort of scratched the surface, but it wasn't really until I started talking to my friends like actually talking to my friends about what they were feeling and what they were seeing. I think one of the things that really kind of hit me right in the gut was a friend of mine shared an article that was about when does my beautiful black boy become a threat? She's got, I, I, I think, I think, I think I remember seeing that. Yeah. She's got a seven year old. I've got an eight year old and it just slapped me in the face that I, I'm not going to need to have that conversation with my son. And I was, I, I started to become horrified 
about this. And then I started to realize like the, as parents, there are innumerable things that we get feel guilty about that we feel stressed out about. That is not one of the things that I have to worry about. So this was like a way that I could connect with my friends who are physicians and, and, and listen to them just to start to open my own ears and, and hear their experiences. And when I started to do that, you can't, you can't stop, you know? And so you start like reading things. And so, you know, I'm, I'm reading Imbram um, Kendi's uh, how to be an anti-racist right now, you know, and I've got stamped on my, you know, next list and then white fragility. And so what it, it, in, it created this hunger in me, sort of like the lifelong learner. There are other things that I need to learn that I need to be a part of to make the world better and to make medical education better. Again, sort of taking it back to being an educator and being an academician. I need my students to know that I'm a safe place to come to if they see racial inequity, if they see racial discrimination. I need, but I need to show them and I can't just say it. I need to show them that I am here. You know, I need to, to demonstrate with my actions. I need to demonstrate with my words. I need to, I need to truly incorporate into my own curriculum for the courses that I teach. Like, okay, what parts of this have potentially been, you know, demonstrative of institutional racism? How are the social determinants of health actually impacting this? And, you know, back to our discussion just a few minutes ago about students asking really tough questions. Three years ago, one of my students who's in my medical education and leadership scholarly concentration track came to my like workshop vehemently angry and near tears because she was so upset that the lecture that had been given in their practice of medicine course um, was talking about the sickle cell patient who's always black, the HIV patient who's always gay, the oh, yes. you know, the, um, Ooh, talk to the drug addict ah. who's always black. And she's like, why are they teaching it this way? And to my blind eyes at that moment, I was like, look, I understand you're really passionate about this and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to dissuade your passion. I, I followed that though with, this is how we learned it. So I don't think there's any malintent. Like I truly don't think there's any malintent behind the, the way this teacher is presenting this information. It's simply that we don't have the foundation to teach it any other way. So like, like the whole unlearning process and the whole decolonization of our medical curriculum, it's going to take years. Right. And, it, and it, I, I, love, I love that you say that because uh, it's, it's so ingrained in our, our medical teaching, right? That you just like, even medical students know like certain buzzwords equals certain diagnosis. Like yeah. if I, if I say, you know, uh, a black woman who happens to have high calcium, they automatically start thinking about sarcoidosis. I have no clue why they are, but it's just one of those things that they just boom, 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 mm-hmm. like, boom, and then they kind of match along. So I, 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 I 100% agree. Um, like we have to have foundational changes. So it, it, it so that black uh, patient 
doesn't always happen to have sickle cell, right? So that homosexual patient doesn't always happen to have HIV, which is crazy when the numbers like don't make well, good, and like, in, in DC, <laughs> that's like a, a heterosexual woman is more likely to have HIV than a gay man. Right, like that's the the numbers don't make no sense for that to even still, but yeah. But the steps are still written that way. Mm-hmm. And and it's difficult because you 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 tell them to try to learn it, uh, but you know to be successful again, you're going to run into unfortunately standardized test questions, right? That are going to play upon uh, a bias and uh, you know a, a non-inclusive approach of how they train us. Uh, so I, I definitely agree that it it really does take a very active. Um, a, a approach to have to unlearn, unlearn so you can then turn around and, and teach. Um, uh, very, yeah, I, lo- I love that. Very, very interesting from that, from, especially from a perspective. But to your point about the kneeling, um, very shortly after George, Flo- George Floyd's death, um, Dean Haywood got together with our medical school dean, who is our first female dean. And they put together a statement out to the whole GW community about uh, our dedication to anti-racism and, and arranged an entire school-wide kneel-in. And I had my son that day, so I couldn't go to campus, but I did it on my front lawn, you know, with a camera. And I, you know, I was there for, you know, eight minutes and is it 26 seconds? I yeah. can't remember. Uh, 46. And when you do that kneeling... Like, like, like we, cause we, we, you know, eight minutes sounds kind of long. Uh, and when you're kneeling, you realize like, wow. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think that, I think, I think just that symbolism really makes that gesture even more um, profound mm-hmm. because you, you get to minute two and you're like, oh, okay. All right. I'm mm-hmm. right. And then you get to minute four and you're like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And then you get to minute six and you're like, okay, like you, you start twisting and try to stretch your back. And mm-hmm. then minute seven, and it just seems like it's going forever. Mm-hmm. And, and then you think in the back of your mind, like, wow, like this person had uh, someone's neck, someone's knee on their neck for this long. And, and I think that's what really drives home the, the symbolism behind it. Um, and and I, I love that GW was like, no, we're, we're, we're going to just get behind this. Like this is... Um, you know, what we're going to do. Um, why do you feel that was important, right? Especially especially in, in this day and age, especially with medical education being the way it is that um, not only do we have to pr- uh, promote just the, the aspect of, you know, being anti-racist, right? Which which is sounds crazy, but it, like I think, like you said, like it was around you, but until you actively had to do something, you started to realize like, oh, I actually have to be active in my approach, but also inclusive as well. Which, which is something I, I, I think, especially in medicine, I know, again, like I said, um, for, cause like I said, I don't, I don't know, I got, I got, I got plenty of family in military, plenty of family in the law enforcement. And yes, I, I know you hate the way I talk about police. Um, but I know I'm talking from a glass house as well. I know medicine has its issues, um, uh, that it needs to address. Um, what, why, why do you think that that level of importance, especially as your institution is kind of standing behind you to say, like, not only do we have to, to be anti-racist, right, but we have to be inclusive as well. Like, why, why do you think especially those two factions were very important? So I think my role, at least in it, is because there are 
implicit biases across the board, there is a very high likelihood that someone who looks like me is more likely to listen to me than they are to listen to someone who is a person of color. And so I, I know that based on our own implicit biases that I may be able to have a conversation which breaks down those walls a little bit, or at least fosters a thought provoking conversation. Because I think that like, there's never going to be a switch for the folks who, who do not currently see it as a problem, who do, do not currently recognize systemic racism and um, institutionalized racism there's not going to be a switch that flips them, but there might be certain things that, okay, let's look, well, let's look at this policy. Let's, let's look at this policy and figure out ways in which this policy might potentially lead to a lack of diversity. Let's look at our hiring policies. Let's look and see how truly inclusive we are. We have inclusivity and diversity listed on our website, but let's actually look at the landscape of the people that are in our institution. And let's say, have we put our money where our mouth is? And if we are asking people to do things to build up the reputation of our institution, are we paying for their time? Are we valuing their time? You know, and are there opportunities that are being given to a certain uh, group that are not being equally provided to another group. And what are we doing for those of us who are in positions of leadership? What are we doing to further lift other people up to our level and promote them even beyond us? That's where the, the inclusion story comes in. You know, and I'm, I'm still learning about organizational structure and organizational um, design and, and, you know, I don't know anything about writing policy. Um, you know, I'm not a policy expert, but I have friends who are. And I think that that's the other thing is there's not one person's going to solve this problem. This has to be an interdisciplinary, cross-cultural change. You're going to have to involve everybody at every level the people that are at the front door checking IDs and the people that are answering the phones for you and the people that are cleaning your bathrooms for you. Like, like everybody has to be part of this conversation and everybody, I mean, it, it, you just have to demonstrate that you value people regardless of what they look like or where they come from. You just, you have to, you have to value each person and you know, where they came from. And and what I love, especially because obviously the position that we're in, being in graduate medical education, because mm-hmm. um, this this is something I I, I grapple with uh, really constantly. Um, you know, just that onus of really having to actively think about it. Like our, our program, we have um, 18, 18 medical residents uh, total, uh, so six every year. And um, when I look across the landscape of you know, people who are applying to the program and, you know, where they're coming from. And, you know, you, you see kind of the same similar approaches and understand, and, and you see like, all right, the same type of people are applying and what am I doing to reach out to a population that I would like, right? Like this year, right? Like uh, I was kind of ecstatic. Um, this year we actually matched uh, six women, right? All six spots, all six women, um, which was like a secret goal of mine. Uh, because when I came in, uh, the ratio was 12 and six or no, I no, I think it was like 13 and five. 
And I was like, like, how, how, how is, how is a woman going to feel like this is a part of their residency as well? If they can't look out and see a lot more people that look like them. Right. And that, and that, that standpoint. So um, it, it was de- definitely, uh, you know, a, a very, but it, I think you right. It does have to be a very active approach. Like I, again, I would, um, you know, post in women's groups and I'll say, Hey guys, think about this program. Like I, and, and especially cause I already know I'm kind of, uh, you know, behind eight ball because all of our faculty, right. Happen to be men, right. Like I'm just looking around and I'm seeing, you know, things that like, if, if I was a woman, right. Like would this be the environment that I would want to be in? And, and, and if it's not, what can I do, right, to, to help it be that way? So in, in your stand, especially in graduate medical education, where you're, you're dealing with medical students and residents, and like, like how, how is that approach, how, like how do you um, try to take some of those, um, you know, practices into that approach of just kind of what you're doing on a, a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis? Mm-hmm. So I think it's probably most pertinent for residency um, recruitment because I don't do interviews for med school recruitment for med school admissions, but I do interviews for our residency recruitment. And I think for us in particular, we probably need to take a critical look at how we review the applications ahead of time because they're there when you have a certain number of applications that come in, a lot of times we create these, these strata okay you had this board score and you had this grades then you go in this pile if you didn't get this board score and this grade, then you go in this pile but what what has become more clear to me recently is that just because you didn't get a board score a certain way does not necessarily mean that you are not a competitive applicant and you know I know I took the MCAT twice and I paid for a Kaplan course because I was working full time as a nurse and I could afford it. Um, but not everybody has that opportunity. And there are in many cases, life experiences, which are much more informative and much more valuable to your life as a physician than the performance you had on a standardized examination. We talk. Oh, lunch learning community. You can't see me, um, but I've been shaking my head probably for like the past five minutes because I'm like, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I think what we there needs to be a again it's a it's a cultural thing. So you have to look at everybody who's involved in residency recruitment, and you know spread the love. You know, the reviewing applications shouldn't just be one or two people's job. You know, it, it, you can spread the love a little bit, but we should be taking a critical look at other things that, that are adding value to, to EQ. Where, where's the EQ score on an application? Oh, there isn't one? Well, because we don't have a good way to measure it. But this is the kind of thing that, you know, when... It, when you were 13, you got a job, you know, at the corner deli because you had to help pay the bills for your house so that your family could survive. And then while you were in school, you were also waitressing. And then while you were, you know, doing this, you were also candy striving, but you don't have any research. Well, you don't have any research because your, your family was trying to survive. And you have a better, and again, this goes, this, this supports the research out there that, that, 
demonstrates that folks who come from lower socioeconomic background are much more in tune to their patients' needs in primary care who are also in those environments. What, what does someone who, you know, not to disparage anyone with an Ivy League education, but what does someone who is an eighth generation Ivy League, you know, educator know about living in, you know, in poverty? They may be, they may feel, they may be the most empathic person. They may be a phenomenal physician with tremendous amount of knowledge, and they may have all the feels and really be able to connect with their their patients. There are some things you cannot connect on if you have not lived that experience. I love it, and and it's, it's so true because uh, that just just having that connection there and having that that will to go outside of the quote unquote norm, AKA the board scores, AKA, um, you know, the fancy letter of rec, AKA even the fancy medical school. Um, being able to go outside that and really look at, you know, your future physician as a whole, um, not only makes, you know, you, I think personally a better person, but it really will make your program a better program right? Just to have that kind of diversity across the board and level of experience in life, level of experience and knowledge, just because uh, it, it's there, right? Because once you're an intern, I don't care where you, you went to uh, for medical school, uh, you don't know much, right? I, I don't care what your board scores was. The second intern day, one touched around, uh, you realize like, oh, like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in for it. Uh, and, and I always say the, that first week of intern, let's say I'll even give them the first one. That first month of internship is always a very humbling experience for many, um, you know, who, who come through because they realize like, oh, like, okay, this is the, 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 the real work uh, is really starting. Like what I was doing was preparing me to get here, but now I got to get to it. So, uh, yeah, I, I 100% agree. Just the, the, the fundamental aspect of, you know, how we select, um, who we select. And, and I, I do agree, we, we're definitely missing uh, the life experience associated, um, you know, with with our future physicians, because all we're doing is looking at these, you know, these numbers um, that are skewed in so many ways. So many, some people are better test takers. Some people can can, can afford the, the, the multiple uh, review courses before they get to actually take the tests. And some, some many people don't have to deal with the anxiety of if I miss this one or uh, two questions, right? Is, does, does my family right not eat, right? Like that's like, that's, those are real life situations that uh, medical students, pre-medical students uh, have to face, right? Even residents when they're getting out, like they have to face, like if I don't do well on this test, um, my whole career trajectory changes in their mind, right? Usually, but like in their mind, they think if I don't answer this one question correctly, like all of a sudden I don't become blank. Um, so so I, I definitely agree, like having to really take a 360 look at uh, really from the top down and seeing what we're doing and seeing what we can change um, is really paramount uh, to, to kind of get into where we, where we need to get to. I mean, it's not, it's not as much, it was not for me as much for my medical school application, but for college, like I had that scenario where I was in high school and because of things going on at home, I bombed my first ACT 
and I was not going to be able to get into college. And I remember going to my parents in tears, knowing what it was to ask them for another $200 to pay for that test. And this was in 1993, you know, $200 was a lot of money back then. And I mean, for some families, even today, $200 is a lot of money. And, and I, the pain in my heart when I had to go ask my family for that and just deal with the ramifications of, of needing to do that. Like that's the, those are the kind of things that our students who are coming from, you know, lower socioeconomic backgrounds and, and underrepresented minorities, that's what they're seeing. That's what they're feeling. I love it. Before I, and I, first of all, I just want to thank you for, you know, such an amazing conversation, um, you know, and, and it kind of really just definitely needs to be had on all fronts and, you know, thank you for making a leap and becoming, you know, the, the uh, an author, right. And allowing us to go and, and open your world up. Right. Because I know that's, uh, that's a very tough thing to do, right. Kind of open up to really strangers. Right. Um, so, so we definitely appreciate that, that aspect uh and you know, your will of it if if i had to take you know one thing away as a as a reader when i read when i read when i read your chapter um if if i had to take take one thing away from it what do you think that would be like what would be your one thing for like one goal that you'd want the reader to take away from and be able to carry and uh you know go to the next level wherever they need to do i think that the one thing that I would want people to, to take away is that your life experiences don't define you. And good, bad, or ugly, those things don't define you. And you should not be ashamed of the path that you had to take to get where you are because you're strong and you're beautiful and you can do whatever you want. I love it. So before before I let you go, I know I said it before, before I let you go, what's next for you, right? So obviously, you know, you're, you're an accomplished author now, uh, clearly have a, an amazing cemented role in just graduate education, but what's next for you? Like what's like, and it's so funny, like I, I love that you talked about, you know, having to, you know, be with your child since March. Um, uh, my wife, uh, she, she's, she's with our three um, kids who've been here as well too, and um, I definitely, I definitely sympathize because uh, <laughs> I, I, I can imagine just that transition while still having to do everything that you're, you're just kind of doing on an amazing front. So that, first of all, thank you for, 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 for doing that, right? Like that's, you know, shout out to you. Um, if, if you haven't gotten any kudos for that, cause that is not, not an easy transition. Um, but what, what's next? Like, do, you, do what, what do we have planned? Like, what, which, what, what can we look for? Like, what, like again, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, and like I said, I'm, you know, just being, uh, you know, uh, you know, fellow, fellow academician. Is that, is that, how, am I pronouncing it right? Because I, yeah. So just being a fellow academician, like, I definitely want to make sure I'm gonna like connect with you uh, to, to make sure you know I'm doing well, and if anything I, I can do or you can do to help us out, uh, definitely reach out. What, 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 what you got planned? What's so the, I think the next big thing on my goal list is I'm going out for promotion in December. So I hope to go from an assistant professor to an associate professor. 
And last September, I had the opportunity to uh, speak at a national meeting. Feminem is uh, an organization of women in emergency medicine. And really, it's become a cross-specialty um, phenomenon, talking about gender equity and, and the like. But that experience, and again, it, it was me, similar to the book, it was sharing a very personal story of you know my upbringing that experience was transformative for me. So, so what I would really love to do is I would love to get on a speaking circuit and be able Ooh. to share my stories in it. different ways. Cause I, there's, there's layers to this onion. I have a lot of layers. <laughs> the, the, the two chapters that are in the book that that's only scratching. It's the only small as well. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's lots, you know, from, and, and, Again, my my son's father and I have a beautiful co-parenting relationship now. It has taken years to develop that, <laughs> you know, and, and there's there's stories behind that as well, you know, and and even, you know, stories about what happened in medical school and just I would just want to talk to people and and I want to hear their stories, too. And I, I just 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 from listening to you talking to you for you know this past hour, um, I, I think you would be amazing, right? Because uh, you seem so very calm, so very collected. And literally, to me, I don't know if you guys realize that. Like a lot of times, um, I don't prep um, the the guests, right? Like so they just they just turn on, and I just start firing questions. Um, and it, it is I, I just love like how calm and poised you are. So I could I could easily see you. Uh, on the stage killing it and of course unfortunately especially you being in an emergency medicine me being a hospital physician with the coronavirus and everything kind of um, you know you know stopping conferences internationally um, when they do open back up uh, I'm in I'm in Florida so you know I, I'm pretty sure you can see the news we're not doing very good as far as wearing masks um, but I, I do, I do hope, and I, I do definitely send wishes and prayers uh, for you on that stage, because I could definitely see you um, uh, with a story that uh, you know could, could definitely motivate. And and that's and that's really the thing about speaking is w there's so many in the crowd that we don't even realize that uh, we know we don't even like when I do the podcast thing, like I talk and talk, and I'm always shocked when someone says, "Oh, hey, I listen to your podcast." Like, I'm like, "Oh, you listen to my podcast?" Like, like it's, it's just one of those things where like it, it just hits you and. Uh, when you have a story, um, you know, like yours, like I know that's going to resonate with someone who's then going to take the baton, right? And who's then going to get up, right, for after they fall and they realize, like, no, if, if Dr. Ogle, right, is able to kind of get through um, what she was able to get through, um, I, I need to be able to keep on going. So definitely we will, especially for the community, we're definitely going to send, you know, wishes and prayers to make sure we get you on that stage whenever the coronavirus allows us to get you on that stage. <laughs> for that halfway. Now, where can people, where can people, obviously, where can people pick up the book? Where, where can people, if they want to follow you, you know, especially if they're not in the D.C. area? Like, where, where? Of course. <laughs> so you can get the book at the chroniclesofwomeninwhitecoats.com. And we are a self-published uh, group. So the 10 authors got together and, you know, put in a bit of a personal investment um, from each of us in order to be able to publish this book. And so when you go to the website, you can choose the author that you'd like to support. 
And I think you're you're interviewing some of our other co-authors. I'm, I'm interviewing a couple of them. I, I interviewed, in fact, I interviewed Dr. Robbins, uh, Amber Robbins. Um, I forget her episode number. It was like, oh, I around the low hundreds. Um, and I interviewed Dr. Kim. Uh, probably like in the like the 140s. Uh, I just remember them in like groups now. Like it's, you know, that's, that's how we have to do it. Um, uh, and I think I, I already interviewed Dr. Maxwell. And I think I got like two more. Um, so so I'm, yes, I'm, so I'm definitely excited. And 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 I, I didn't say this on Dr. Maxwell's interview, but I am actually going to be uh, supporting the Women's White Coat. I'm going to be giving ten books away, right, to you know our lovely listeners, right, who need to be enlightened, need to read these stories, need to be able to be, um, you know, get, get some of that personal trust. Cause like I said, um, I understand, you know, the, the, as a man, right. Like I may not be able, I could say stuff all day. Right. Um, but if you're a woman, maybe you're, you're, you're not necessarily going to hear it. Like I want you to hear it. So, um, I, I want to make sure you get access, uh, to these amazing women, um, you know, who have a, an amazing story to tell and any physician who, who, who has a story to tell, right? And who isn't scared to tell it, right? Because again, I've I've said this before, lunch and community. You know, you know me. Um, I think one of our this this services we do in medicine as physicians is we keep our story to ourselves, and it we don't allow the pre med who's going through that similar trial, right, to see like, oh, there's that example I needed to keep going, right? There's that like so like. I love physicians who are who are able to put, you know put their heart on their sleeve and say like hey hey world here I am right like like hear me war I'm ready I'm ready I'm ready to take whatever you're gonna give me um, uh, because I know I'm gonna touch somebody else so uh, I, I didn't say it on Dr Maxwell's um, uh, interview but like definitely make sure we are, we are gonna be supporting uh, these ladies and these women um, uh, to to make sure like we get their story out to where it needs to get to. Awesome. As far as where people can get a hold of me on social media, you guys can follow me on Twitter. I am Dr. Kitty Cat, both, uh, both with a K. Kitty with a K and Cat with a K. Dr. Kitty Cat. I, I, you know, I made that, I made that handle what, like 10 years ago. Yes. Yes. Let's learn community. Remember, uh, the links uh, will be in the show notes. Um, so uh, you don't have to like write it down anywhere, especially if you're driving or something. I will put the links in the show notes, go directly to her Twitter, follow her. I'm going to like, right when I'm doing this interview, I'm going to follow her Twitter as well too. So, <laughs> so Dr. Gold, thank you again for, um, such an amazing word, such an amazing story. Um, you know, helping us really get enlightened with everything that's kind of going on. And we wish you nothing but success, uh, with the book, with the speaking, uh, with everything that you got going on. did, did the academician, the GME stuff, like all of it. I wish you success in all of that. Thank you so much, Dr. Barry. And you stay safe down there in Florida with the, with the coronavirus. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming to the end of the episode. It is your truly Dr. Barry Pierre. I want to give my undying thanks to you for your support. Just getting to the end of the episode means that you at least enjoyed today's episode. Hope you were empowered by today's episode. Please remember to share this episode with at least two people that you know that would be greatly affected if they did not listen to today's episode. And if you have not already done so, subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a five-star review, especially on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave a review. Leave a review there because your support is so, 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 so valuable. 
for what we're doing here on the Lynch Learn and everything with Pierre Medical Consulting. And if you have not done so, go ahead and join the listserv. To join the listserv, it's very easy. Just grab your phone right now. I'll pause. Join the listserv. You want to text Lunch Learn Pod. This is all going to be one word Lunch Learn Pod to 44222. And you'll be on the listserv. You'll know exactly when new episodes are coming out. You'll know about new episodes before they actually come out because I usually tell my listserv members, hey, this is what I'm working on. These are the guests that you should expect to hear for the week on. Thanks, guys. You have a blessed day, and I'm going to see you guys next week.